You're listening to the Faith and Law Podcast. Many have missed the deep religious significance of Russia's recent wars. This is not surprising as modern-day Russia is highly secular. Dr. Eric Patterson of the Religious Freedom Institute identified key features of Russia's religious geopolitics across the Orthodox world, from the holy war against ISIS in Syria to recovery of sacred spaces in the Crimea. Well, thank you all. It's a pleasure to see you uh, and to be back with Faith and Law. And rather than a a normally structured outline, today I'm going to make six or seven points about the religious elements of Russia's invasion of Ukraine, the justifications for it, the holy war language that comes out of the Kremlin. It's the religious landscape and the religious freedom landscape that we often don't hear on CNN or in the mainstream news. In fact, some of it just doesn't even sound real until someone on the ground tells you about it or you watch a news clip of something that spokespeople from the Kremlin are saying. So um, let me take us back, though, to a, a book that, or an article that many of you had to read if you studied poli-sci or international relations, and it's Samuel Huntington's famous uh, Clash of Civilizations. And the Clash of Civilizations thesis, written in 1992, was that at the end of the Cold War, and the end of this, of this era where there was a Western bloc versus an Eastern bloc that created a lot of stability in international affairs, what would the security dynamics of, of, of a post-Cold War world look like in the 21st century? And Huntington said, where we'll see conflict is along the borders of great civilizations. And he defined civilizations as the largest cultural group that people could have an affinity for. And so in his reading, there was a a Hindu civilization centered in in India and a Chinese Confucian civilization and a Orthodox civilization based in Moscow that was a counterweight to kind of a Western Protestant and Western Catholic civilizations. Now, it's it's a thesis that remains controversial to this day, but if you look at two or three of the places in the world that are the most dangerous right now, Huntington's thesis actually seems to be, to make sense. One of those, which we're not talking about today, is India. And India has become increasingly lawless and violent along religious sectarian lines due to the rise over the past 25 years of violent Hindu nationalism. And that's worth its own talk um, for somebody else or here at some future point. But this is a way also to understand the justification for that Putin makes about Russia's spiritual homeland, the Russian mirror, the, its near abroad, the unity of global orthodoxy, and the like. So I want to hit some of those points right now. First, as, as you may have known, the, the language that Putin has used about Russian identity for the past 20 years has been a spiritual type of language. We don't really get this in the West because we usually look at Putin, I think rightfully so, as a as kind of a great white shark. You know, he's a predator. And we think about him as a former communist KGB official. We don't really think about him as a spiritual or religious person, although he wraps himself in lots of, uh, of religious language. But we, we usually don't think about him as, as personally faithful, so we usually don't think about the kinds of religious justifications that are used. But starting in the 1990s, he, what he understood to have happened to Russia was that the very soul of the country, meaning it's the, the strength of a Russian character, its identity, 
had been destroyed first by communism and then second as, as the greatness, the power of the country fell apart. And so he's been systematically reinforcing in Russian history, in his speeches, in two and a half hour television interviews, over and over again, what does it mean to be a Russian? What does it mean to be a Russian citizen? And he ties it to the Russian Orthodox Church. He ties it to Russian history. He ties it to Russian Christianity going back to 979 AD when Vladimir the Great converted to Christianity in, where did he do it? In Crimea. So part of this, uh, of, a, of an assertive Russian identity is, is tied up in the history of the Russian Orthodox Church in Russian civilization as Christian. This language uh, is, not just about, is not just part of this new identity, but it's, it's a part of the cultural diplomacy that Moscow has used for more than a decade. And of all people, it's National Geographic that's been documenting this. Uh, in two major articles over the past decade, they've shown how Moscow has sent um, aid to rebuild convents, monasteries, historic churches, and museums throughout the greater Orthodox world. And it's really a clever form of democracy, right? Now imagine this. In this building, could you get money to rebuild churches in Africa? Right? I mean, no, we don't. We, most, most people would not support that. But what Moscow's been doing is it's been saying, you Armenian Christians, you Greek Orthodox Christians, we are part of a shared historical union that goes back to Christ himself. We're the real church. And we're going to support the preservation of your cultural artifacts because they're part of our shared Christianity. And by the way, our shared Christianity is not like that of the decadent West. And so that's another part of the religious diplomacy of Putin. Putin has been saying for a decade now, London, Ottawa, Washington, LA, Hollywood, New York, they are culturally bankrupt. They have sexual confusion. They murder babies. And we here in Moscow, the, the Russian Christendom, we are the champions of marriage. We are the champions of life. And we don't see that very much here in the United States, but there has been a cultural diplomacy on those issues at the United Nations for a decade now. And it's quite clever because what it can do is it's a way to bring alongside culturally authoritarian regimes like the Saudis. And it's a, it's a bridge to people on the right in the West. We've had uh, pretty famous uh, evangelical leaders in the West point to Putin's speeches as, you know, Putin must be a real Christian. He, his regime is the one protecting life and marriage. Uh, smart people in the West have realized that this is a diplomatic ploy, first and foremost. It's not quite clear that this is really from the soul of Vladimir Putin as a religious person. Now, of course, in his personal life, Putin uh, has spent more and more time, especially over the past seven years, in church, uh, not necessarily as a parishioner all the time, but routinely there with his family, with his first wife, um, routinely at major events, holidays, ribbon-cutting ceremonies for the refurbishment of churches. You know, when you go to Russia, religiosity is very, very low, meaning religious practice by the citizenry. It's something like under 4% religious attendance on a regular basis by the Russian people. But nonetheless, Putin has made many, many efforts to be seen visibly as a representative of this close, close fusion of, of church and state, with church in a supportive role to his regime there. And he does that in large part by uh, photo ops and being on stage. Well, there's been a language also recently of holy war uh, 
in the deployment of Russian troops abroad. Now, the most famous case of this was uh, 2017, when Russian troops on the ground in Syria were fighting against Islamic State on behalf of the Assad government. And an amazing press release came out uh, from the Russian Orthodox Church. The senior spokesperson for the Russian Orthodox Church called the war in Syria against ISIS a holy war. Now, that's, that's really loaded language that even religious conservatives pretty much of all stripes in Christianity don't use. Uh, for the chief spokesperson for the Orthodox Church to say that in a press briefing and then to print it in a publication after that, it's a pretty telling nature that this relationship, this, this mutually beneficial relationship between the church and between the government, and specifically Putin's government, is very, very potent to lend religious justification to these foreign adventures. And of course, you've seen this at a a massive level now uh, when it comes to the war in Ukraine, right? That That the leader of the Russian Orthodox Church has justified this invasion, that the leader of the Russian Orthodox Church has had lies such as that Ukraine attacked Russia first, um, this, this kind of vehement Christian nationalism that we see in the language of, Arch, uh, of uh, Bishop Kirill, uh, uh, Metropolitan Kirill. I mean, it's, it's, it's stunning and amazing. And what it does, does that mean that all of the Russian people are, are feeling a wave of religious fervor? That's not what I'm saying. Am I saying that all the Russian people listen to Kirill? No. But it's a carefully constructed package of cultural diplomacy abroad, of a set of arguments being made across multiple sectors of diplomacy, and a justification, a set of religious justifications. What does Putin say about the spiritual heartland of Russia? It's in Crimea, because that's where Vladimir the Great converted in the 10th century. Now, we have a a whole set of language in the social sciences or in history, words like concordat between church and state, that, that help us to look at this type of relationship. I think those are beyond our time here. But you might ask, is it working? Is it, is it working for Putin to, to, to make these types of claims, to be close to the church? And I think that the answer is, in many ways, yes. It's working not necessarily to win this war, but it's, it, but it's been working year after year for him to forge a, a Russian identity. Remember, Putin wins elections, People keep telling you, oh, Putin, you know, he, 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 he stuffs the ballot box. Uh, the last couple of elections, uh, he hasn't had to stuff the ballot box. Now, he controls much of the media. He controls much of the messaging. But that's different than Saddam Hussein receiving 99.8% of the vote or North Korean elections or something like that. There is a level of popularity for Putin. And if you watch the journalism, what's being spread by Moscow, what the Russian people are seeing is very, very different uh, and and if, you, and if you have friends in Ukraine, ask them what they're seeing on Russian television and Russian radio, because they, they're getting it, we're not. And they're seeing an entirely different story about this war, about the sacrifice. We can talk about that in the Q&A if you want. Last point on this, um, on this religious nature of the conflict and these justifications and the way that Russia's approaching this, and that is religious freedom in Russia. Now, let me tease you by saying... I agree with Vladimir Putin that Ukraine is a threat to Putin's Russia. And, and the way to think about this is in terms of religious freedom. Now, who's public enemy number one religiously in Russia? 
And public enemy number one, you might think, would be violent Islamists, right? The terrorist attacks, Chechnya, et cetera, but it's not. The number one group who are, who are persecuted under Russia's really draconian counterterrorism law are Jehovah's Witnesses. Now, that's a small group, and they're not very threatening. They're nice people who stand on the street corner. They, they'll tell you about their faith. Uh, they don't serve in the military. They're not counter-revolutionary forces. But over 250 of the people, which is over half of the people currently in prison or, or on their way to prison, under the counterterrorism law in Russia, are Jehovah's Witnesses. Now, why is that? Why, what do they represent? And I think there's a couple of things. First, by pointing at them, Putin says they are not Russian. They, they are they're infiltrators. They are culturally antagonistic to us because they're not part of our, of our orthodox heritage. And even if they were born here in Russia, they're really, in a sense, cultural invaders from the West. We are an orthodox people. We are unified in this way. And the Jehovah's Witnesses represent the tip of the spear of Baptists and the Assemblies of God and the Methodists and all of these other Westerners funded by their government invading us and diluting our religio-cultural heritage. Why beat up on, on Jehovah's Witnesses instead of, say, Southern Baptists? And I think because they're so small, you bully the runt, you bully the little guy on the playground, and it sends a message to the bigger kids who might fight back, right? Remember that from school? The bully goes after the weakest kid, not the, not the second strongest kid to prove himself. The bully goes after the weakest. And I think in this case, Putin has been very clever. His government has been very clever. Beat up on the smallest religious faiths, say they are not Russian, rearticulate what it means to be Russian, and scare off all the other Western religious groups who might come here. By the way, if you're a, if you're a Baptist pastor in St. Petersburg, and you invite a friend, say a Finnish pastor, to come and preach at your church, your church can be shut down for six months, it's a $14,000 fine, and you and he can go to jail. Just having a friend come and talk to your parishioners at a private house church event. I mean, it's that type of persecution there. So what does this mean for Ukraine? Well, Ukraine, in a sense, is a threat to Putin's way of thinking about Russians Russia's sphere of influence. Because what Ukraine has done in recent years is it's built upon a stable platform of religious diversity and real religious freedom, which truly is the first freedom for a representative form of government. If you're going to have freedom of speech, if you're going to have freedom of conscience, if you're going to have the right to assemble, if you're going to have freedom of private property, if you're going to be able to print things, if you're going to be able to share your faith with your children, if you're going to be able to educate your children in the values that are most important to you, all of that collection of things that we call first freedoms, they're all represented first and foremost by religious freedom. And in fact, that's the foundation. There's no place where you have freedom of speech where you don't have freedom of religion. There's no place where you have freedom of the press where there's not freedom of religion. That is the fundamental conscience right of them all. And somehow, Ukraine, unlike any of its neighbors, has been able to have a a denominational system with multiple national churches competing in a religious marketplace, in a sense. Ukrainian Catholics, Roman Catholics, Ukrainian Orthodox, now two versions, one allied with Moscow, uh, which is actually calling out this war as unjust, and, and the new one, the new uh, Ukrainian Orthodox Church that's four years old or so, and evangelicals, and a president who's of Jewish extraction, although not practicing. Ukraine has done something 
in its Western orientation in recent years that scares Putin because his vision is for a part of the world that's a, a, a Russian, it's not just a political sphere of influence, it's a spiritual, it's a cultural, it's a historical and linguistic group of peoples led by Moscow sharing a historic identity but also a shared future with Moscow at the center of it. And Ukraine, due to its size, due to it being a buffer with NATO in the West, has shifted its orientation. And it has the roots to do so because it isn't this type of top-down, authoritarian, former Soviet, anti-faith type of culture. It's one of the most religiously diverse and the most religiously practicing, although that's not saying much, in its region. In that way, as an idea, a Western-oriented Ukraine, not because of joining NATO, not because of a big military, which it doesn't have, not because of natural resources, the first of which is wheat of all things, not for those reasons, but Ukraine as an idea of a country leaving the orbit of Putin's Moscow, being oriented to the West, being a place of tolerance and liberty, that's what makes Ukraine a threat. That's, that's what bothers Vladimir Putin. So what I've tried to do is just give you a sense of the religious dynamics that are going on in Russia. We could talk more about the denominational structure of Ukraine and how it operates, if you like. Uh, but what we've tried to show is that you really can't understand the story unless you understand the religious dynamics of what's going on there. And let me just close by noting, if you go back and look at photos of the Maiden Revolution, which was the overthrow of the Russian-oriented government in 2014, the thing that CNN never talked about, but you see it in all the photos, is you look at the speakers at the microphone, championing democracy, freedom, etc., and standing right behind them on the stage, day after day after day, often holding hands, often praying or singing hymns, were the religious leaders of the country. And it's pretty amazing to see the head Baptist guy of the country holding hands with an Orthodox priest next to a, a Catholic priest, singing like the equivalent of Hillsong's uh, worship songs interspersed with Ukrainian hymns. I mean, that was the reality on the ground. There was a, the religious communities united, Putin saw that, and it's a reminder, it's a constant reminder to him of just how powerful faith is as a weapon uh, of war and diplomacy. Thank you, and I'd be happy to take questions or comments at this time. Thank you for listening. If you would like to listen to recordings of past lectures, register for future Friday forums, or sign up to our newsletter, please visit our website, www.faithinlaw.org.